So we're going to talk about transparency and secrecy in the book of Acts. And I know that's not one of Acts' themes. No way. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but we're going to still see what we can draw from the book of Acts. But I want to give you some background to this whole issue of uh, transparency and secrecy. Um, that, the text that came to my mind in the Old Testament about transparency and secrecy came from uh, Moses and the magicians in Egypt. So if you look at Exodus 7, 20-22, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them in the sight of Pharaoh and of his officials. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the river, and all the water turned into blood, and the fish in the river died. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, one of the things you need to know about the ancient Near East that I'm drawing from Mesopotamia now is that the people in charge of the secret arts, exorcism, uh, I'll, I'll come to the list in a moment, uh, they wanted to keep those arts secret. They didn't want anyone to know how they were able to do these things. When you join the magicians, uh, that's one of the things, secrecy. And in fact, they were so secretive that as time went on, originally they had natural secrecy because they were the only ones who could read and write, mm -hmm. except for maybe the court scribes. Uh, and so there was no problem with keeping them secret, but eventually everybody could, not everybody, but a lot of more people could read and write, and that posed a real problem for them. So they changed the language that they used to transcribe their secret arts. They uh, went back to Sumerian, which is the most ancient language, uh, and they used the logograms instead of the cuneiform syllables that the Cadian writers would use. So they they did that in order to keep this thing secret. Uh, Sumerian was in the more in the later periods more like Latin is to us today, uh, kind of the whole secret language. Uh, so uh, anciently. Uh, I already said this. The royal circle involved five scholarly crafts exorcism, divination, lamentation, appeasement, astrology, and medical practices. Um, medicine was a uh, form of a secret art. The uh, patron deity of the secret arts was Inca, or sometimes called Ea, who is known to reveal endless secrets to the Babylonian Noah, Atropasus. And I'm going to quote here and read this. Um, don't want to stand in front of someone. Unlike the protective treatment of secret knowledge in Mesopotamia and Israel, at least as presented in the Hebrew Bible, knowledge from the divine realm is proclaimed quite openly, even publicly. I suggest that this difference in treatment is rooted in a specific religious, political understanding of Israel in relation to its deity that is generally, even if not entirely, permeated the biblical materials. That is, Yahweh's divine assembly was not a reflection of the Israelite royal council. Rather, that in order to understand secret divine communications in Israel, we should see his divine assembly as a reflection of a human imperial royal council. In other words, we see it that way, but that wasn't the way it was intended. As presented in the Bible, therefore, Israel was in no position to guard divine secret knowledge as Yahweh's vassal. They only received and obeyed it. So, uh, you have this, this openness in the Hebrew Bible that you don't have in, say, Mesopotamia and other places. Now, this does not mean that every time you see something in the Hebrew Bible, it's completely transparent. God had Elijah flee Abraham and live in hiding. And one of his hiding places ended up being the very, you might say, the bastion of Jezebel. He actually goes to the wood of Zarephath. Zarephath is just below, few miles below where uh, Jezebel's hometown is. I believe it's like. Jesus lists several things to be done in secret praying, fasting, giving alms. Jesus himself went secretly to one of the feasts and then appeared openly to all the people. And we have Deuteronomy 29, 29 that reminds us that things to God are secret until he makes them revealed. 
so the secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our offspring forever, that we may do all the words of this law. That's why you missed. No one knows the day of the That's true. Not yeah. even Jesus knows that, right? Uh, according to Jesus. Uh, yeah. So that's another one. And you can probably bring up some more. Uh, I wrote this as an article for the Sabbath commentary for last Sabbath in the spectrum. And uh, somebody in their comment at the end of my article listed a whole bunch of texts where there's secrecy. Uh, well, I had covered that in the article, but they maybe didn't read it yet. So secrecy seems to be reserved for God in situations where one's life or work is in danger or in which pride is to be avoided. Entice, and then there are negative forms of secrecy, enticing someone secretly to worship another god than Yahweh, setting up an idol in secret, striking down a neighbor in secret, uh, and then the text that we read already, but this, the judgment is the light comes into the world, and we either come to the light because uh, we're not afraid of the judgment, or we hide in the dark because our deeds are evil. The book of Acts opens with the disciples of Jesus <coughs> watching him rise from the earth until he disappeared. It's very open. Uh, of course, you had to know where Jesus was <laughs> to be able to come see his ascension, but uh, it certainly wasn't done in a secret place. And then they retired to their upstairs room where they had been living, and at one time they were hiding in secret the doors bolted and locked. Um, they were in secret. And this is something that I, I hope we're going to go through the storyline of Acts looking at this topic. So notice what happens. Uh, they remain there until the day of Pentecost. Apparently then they leave that room for a more public place that it could accommodate many more people. What's leading them to leave? The Holy Spirit's boy. Peter preaches boldly his Pentecost sermon and 3,000 Jews are convicted to follow Jesus. So once they have the Holy Spirit, no more secrets. And that's going to be the theme in that. Um, so afterwards, they, every day, they spent time together with food and, and generous hearts praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. Uh, and people keep coming. Next, Peter heals a crippled beggar and preaches again. And along comes the temple captain, the Sadducees. You can imagine that somebody's in the, in the crowd watching these men. And is that secret or is that transparent? Well, I'll leave you to decide. Um, the, the next day they hold trial, and Peter answers them boldly. They order Peter and John not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And at least they're still being quite open. The Jewish leaders come and arrest them. Oh, <laughs> uh, I think there's a gap here. Uh, John and Peter don't obey this command. And so the Jewish leaders come and arrest them, and the next day the leaders assemble the main officers down in their midst, and Peter and John again speak boldly. They order Peter and John to leave while they discuss privately the question, what shall we do with them? Well, that's what we do in, in all kinds of settings, don't we? A uh, student gets in trouble and gets taken before uh, the, I won't say punishment council, but the disciplinary committee. And they get to tell their spiel, and they get to have an advocate for them. But at the end of the day, uh, the decision that is made is made privately and then announced to them. So there's private discussion. That's pretty normal. Uh, they bring them back and order them not to speak in Jesus' name. They threaten to punish them with no way to do so because of the people. So everything's still fairly transparent. The apostles praise God and pray for boldness. Notice now that the Holy Spirit is poured out. They aren't ready to run back to their rooms and hide. They begin to do healings all over Jerusalem and get persecuted for doing so. They are put in prison. The angel releases them. They get arrested again but without violence for fear of the people. So now they're withholding something that they would prefer to do, but because of the people, they're afraid to do. And uh, remind them of their command to stop preaching Jesus, only to hear the apostles say, 
it must obey God rather than men. This is becoming familiar language today in the Adventist church. <laughs> the leaders would have killed them except for Gamaliel's intervention, but they did flog them in order not to speak them in Jesus' name, and they disobeyed. Next, Stephen did an amazing thing among the people, the Jews uh, from parts of the diaspora argued with him but could not withstand his wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. So then these people who were arguing with them secretly instigated some men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. After stirring up the people, elders and scribes had suddenly confronted him, seized him, took him before the council, and their false witnesses spoke against him. Stephen preaches his last sermon and gets stoned to death. The shift then takes place. People scatter. They go to various places preaching Jesus. They no longer are confined to Jerusalem. That's a way of doing secrecy, isn't it? To go someplace else. Because Paul and we have Paul getting converted, because Paul preaches openly, the Jewish leaders plot to kill him and still with his friends secretly send him away. So now uh, things have gotten kind of shifted to secrecy level on both sides. Paul gets secretly ferreted away because they're secretly plotting to do him in. Once Paul becomes accepted by the Christians in Jerusalem, he preaches boldly in Jerusalem. The Hellenists attempt to kill him, so the church sent him away. And the shift continues. Uh, I'm going to just run through this quickly. Peter has a vision of unclean animals, visits a Gentile, gets criticized by the other apostles. Uh, believers continue, to, but then gets favorably received. And believers continue to scatter, carrying the good news to distant places. James is killed, Peter's imprisoned, only released, uh, and so on. So generally, again, there's this shift taking place. We get persecuted here, we leave that place, and go to another place. A kind of form of secrecy. Then we have this trial of, of Jerusalem, or the Jerusalem Council, over the issue of circumcision. And it seems that that's pretty transparent if you look through this list. Uh, the, the people who are the Judaizers who are constantly contending with Paul over this issue are pretty open about their contention. Um, the Jerusalem Council meets openly and discusses this issue and decides what to do, which is to side with Paul, uh, but to continue to advocate certain rules. The question is whether Paul obeys those rules. Those rules included not eating unclean meat or being offered to idols. But here's what Paul says in Romans 1, 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. The kingdom of God is not in food and drink, but in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He then advises them not to eat what will make another believer stumble. So there's the weak people who are the people who think they can't offer, can't eat a food offered to idols. That would include the Jerusalem Council. Um, and there are uh, the strong people who are the Gentile believers who don't see any problem with eating meat offered to idols. He reiterates the same thing, only more specifically about food offered to idols in 1 Corinthians. Is this a lack of transparency on Paul's part? And he doesn't ask the Jerusalem Council for permission for this. He simply goes off and says his own thing, it seems like. And um, is this transparency? Well, everybody can read his letter if they think they hold of it. Then we have Paul's mission trips, and in various places there is secrecy. Uh, they get uh, flogged, and, be, and then there's an earthquake in the prison, and they get left free. And the next morning, the magistrates order the jailer to let Paul and Silas go. Uh, the jailer tells them, come out now and go in peace, kind of go away, you know, leave us alone. Paul, Paul objects, they have beaten us in public, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and now are they going to discharge us a secret? Certainly not. Let them come out and take us out themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. 
In Thessalonica, Jewish leaders got jealous of Paul's success in forming a mob and set the city in uproar. In Berea, a similar thing happened when Jews from Thessalonica stirred up inside of the crowds against Paul and Silas and Timothy so that Paul was sent to Athens. After the Athenians seemed open and transparent, so was Paul in the open. In Corinth, Paul received open opposition, including an attack which they brought in for the tribunal under Gallio. But Gallio refused to deal with the matter since it dealt with Judaism. And then, so for the next few years, the good news prospered under Paul's ministry with little opposition. When opposition occurred, it was open. Uh, one exception might be the side of the crowd by Demetrius the silversmith over his loss of trade due to Paul's preaching. In Paul's final speech to the Ephesian elders, he recalls all that he has done for the gospel and has suffered for it. His entire speech has a spirit of transparency and openness. And then you know how he goes to Jerusalem. He meets with James and the other brothers. They persuade him to compromise and go through a ritual act with four men, something that will put his life in jeopardy. And on the last day of the rituals, ritual, Jews from Asia uh, have obviously been tracking Paul to stir up the crowds and seize him. They create such a commotion in the process of trying to kill him that the Romans get involved and arrest him. But Paul gets permission to address the Jews and tells the story of his conversion. This stirs them up even more, leaving the tribune to decide to have him examined under torture until Paul asked, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen? And then he was brought before the Jews. <laughs> because Paul left the Jewish court in confusion, the Jews joined in a conspiracy and bound themselves by oath neither to eat or drink until they killed Paul. So now we have a conspiracy, something secret. There are more than 40 who do join in this conspiracy. They intend to do this on Paul's way back to the council. But Paul's nephew learned this and secretly told Paul. So now both sides are going secret to avoid Paul being put to death. The tribune says Paul to Felix, the governor. Paul stays accessory for two years, and then Festus succeeded Felix. And then um, the Jews try to kill him again by secret ambush, but um, Festus decided to go back to see Caesarea. And so. The Jews must have been pretty kind. They were. <laughs> They're getting more and more secretive the more hungry they get. Yes. Festus decided to go back to Caesarea and invited the Jewish leaders to come with him. They met brought bring many serious charges against Paul that they cannot prove. When Festus asked Paul if he wants Festus to try him in Jerusalem, Paul knows he's going to die, and so he appeals to the emperor. After all, he's a Roman citizen. Before sending him to Rome, Festus seeks the counsel of the king Agrippa, who, after hearing Paul's conversion story, viewed him as crazy, they told Festus that if he hadn't appealed to the emperor, he could have been set free, which would have been his death. When a storm arose, Paul ended up in command after escaping from a shipwreck and a viper, Paul came to Rome. He was apparently in a house for two years. And that's where the book of Acts ends. I've always felt it was unfinished. So let's come to questions. Who all acted transparently in the book of Acts? Who all acted secretly? Um, wasn't the Jerusalem Council somewhat secreted when they put out those four requirements for Gentiles uh, without explanation? Most of them had to do with food. And uh, really, uh, what was the purpose of that? Except to make them little Jews? A little, little bit Jewish. <laughs> Um, without really saying so. They're just uh, saying this is what you have to do to be a Christian. But nobody believes that anymore. Well, Paul didn't. Paul didn't believe it. Yeah, they didn't say so. And they, wouldn't, they didn't come out complain with it. Now, there's, there's bits and pieces of secrecy there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I would think that the Jews who became Christians would continue to observe. Jewish practices. Right. So if you have both Christian and Gentile Jews, they wouldn't eat together. We have to have unity, though. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist that. Yeah. It's really fun.
funny to consider what Twitter would have done to the Book of Acts <laughs> if they would have had that. Well, isn't Twitter a little secret? <laughs> it's open. Anybody can get on. It's not a secret. But just, just a question. I'm thinking about Daniel and he had a prayer. Yeah, Daniel does it very openly. Kind of open defiance here. Jessica had a comment on the side, maybe a kind of methodological point. Uh, we're talking secrecy and transparency are the operative concepts here. There's another concept, but I mean, Terry mentioned Twitter, and social media brings to mind. Uh, we have a very strong value, contested value, of privacy in the modern world, which is not nearly so well developed among the ancients, I don't think. Um, and I just, as, as you proceed here, I'm, I'm just suggesting let's not mistake secrecy for privacy. Uh, and you know, there are a great many things well, that, for other people don't know just because it's part of my private business. And that, that's where I put uh, the Sanhedrin when they're meeting privately. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a concern of privacy, the issue, not a secrecy issue. The Sanhedrin, even though they're made, and, my, my modern mind rebels a little bit at that distinction because this isn't the same even making policy decisions for a whole community and but why that is that a sanction of privacy? But that was their job. <laughs> they engaged the world. Well, you mean after they had already talked to them and asked them to go out so they could speak privately yeah. about what they're punishing? Oh, we do that today, don't we? Sure. Exactly. You cannot operate without that. Exactly. The ability to discuss options without the quote opposition knowing those options and your views on the options. My mind came to me, I suddenly came to have a lot more conversations that I was not supposed to share. I know, so I have a lot of thoughts about that, but I don't have to necessarily share them all. But, um, exactly, you learn all of your But on an another word that seems to come in there, why did they tell them to act like little Jews? You know, it's compromise, isn't it? People often, it seems like, we often have to compromise in order to all live together. And we think of being uncompromising, right? Um, and yet, maybe that's what they needed to do in order for everyone to be able to come together. And then you gradually um, get rid of that. Then, then you have someone like Paul who goes off and says, well, I'll yeah. you for the people back in Jerusalem and we could get yeah. them. So, um, it, uh, I get the feeling that, the, um, that secrecy um, is uh, being seen as a negative, um, but uh, secrecy secrecy could be uh, uh, just a not only privacy, but maybe uh, just giving a person a little time to to think about um, how they want to present. Uh, secrecy could be. Um, Actually, a positive thing if you're including uh, spreading uh, people out, uh, they don't actually have to say right then how they feel. They can go to another country and say how they feel. Um, so they, you know, it could be a positive thing. It timing is everything. Uh, do you do? You, you dispel all secrecy on the spur of the moment? Or? No, I, I, I indicate this back, way back, but there was a slide that showed positive secrecy, oh. where secrecy is needed. Where I think, for me, where I draw the line on secrecy is when it is secret, we're secret in order to bring our deeds, keep our deeds from coming into the light because our deeds are evil. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's where I, I draw the line. John? I was thinking that, you know, the issue of privacy and Nicodemus 
coming to Jesus. And I've always thought of that as just a one-on-one -on -one encounter with Jesus. But, but Nicodemus said, I think he, he was speaking for many, because he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And that's pretty powerful. If he is speaking from others who are afraid to speak, which would be the Sanhedrin, yes, or or it's going to say, "Come, you, you say it, you go." No, but, but the question is, if he's speaking for others, why does he come at night? And I think the answer is he's speaking for some of the Sanhedrin, but not all of the Sanhedrin. Uh, and it's in that context that Jesus makes the statement about that uh, this is the judgment that light is coming to the world, which is kind of interesting. Very humorous. I'm just coming back to where you started, where an awful lot starts for you again and again, back with the Acadians and the Babylonians and that sort of stuff. And the understanding that the priestly arts or the circle around the emperor, these are all esoteric, secret kinds of just, It's not just magicians keeping secret their, their tricks of sight of hand, but the medical arts, and the, the, the crafts of divination and exorcism, all of those those kind of professional powers, all of those are secret. Well, this becomes a matter of intelligence in, in ancient Mesopotamia, uh, because you want to keep those, those are secret because you're protecting the king with them. And uh, you don't want anyone getting into those arts and using them against the king. Uh, yeah, uh -huh, uh -huh. Well, transparency and secrecy trans Related to our democratic era, where you know the, the everybody needs to know. Every, everybody needs to know, and, uh, and and all humanity is created equal and, and inalienable rights, and, and all of those sorts of things. Uh, in that kind of, of understanding of our polity, where everyone is a citizen, there is a constant war against secrecy because we do believe, yeah, the secrecy is always in the interest of protecting the people in power and making them unaccountable. Uh, and I, I, I lecture on professionalism to my introductory sociology class and say professionalization and professionalism in the normal institutions of modern society are a quest for power and mystification and secrecy and the use of uh, complex, hard to understand lingo and language and those kinds of things. It's all about power. And you all are training to be professionals. You can't not partake of this institution. Including biblical scholars, let me tell you. And yeah, <laughs> you don't need to tell me, but yeah. Uh, uh, and and we, we're constantly working with that now. Well, I, I think it goes even farther sometimes. I remember well, being told by the department chair that what stays, what comes in the department stays in the department. And that's okay. Maybe. That is okay. Why do we feel that secrecy has a negative connotation? It could be a very positive thing. The School of the Prophets was a secret organization. It wasn't public for everybody. Jesus himself said the same thing. He said the secret of the kingdom of God is given to you, meaning his disciples. It was not given to the public. But it was available to anybody who wanted it. You, but you had to have eyes to see it and ears to hear it. Right, but it was still available. Sometimes it's a matter of timing. You know, Jesus came down from the mountain and swore them to secrecy. Don't breathe a word of what you've seen. Amen! After the Son of Man is raised from the dead, you are free to talk. So, in other words, when it's time, and then he was out. Jehoiada swore them to secrecy and then showed them the young king. But he swore them to secrecy only then showed them the young king. But again, this brings us back to when you're trying to preserve life and you're trying to preserve what is good and right. It's okay to be secret, but when it's time, when it's when you're trying to preserve what is evil, yeah, that's what secrecy is about. Yeah. I was going to point out our little three-year-old is starting to hide and not come when called. <laughs> it reminded me of Walter Nye, a Swiss 
that's not French Swiss psychiatrist's book, Secrets. And he describes the development process where before three, the world is one. I'm not separate from the world. As you begin to realize you're separate, you start not telling everything that happens in your life. And this is a normal part of human development. And the power aspect of secrets is great. Anybody that wants to know my salary can just Google it. What if they're their own salary? And it'll come up for you. Because of the Right to Know Act. And this is our control of power. And whether it's we're going to go into executive session now, or the Sanhedrin goes into executive session, or whatever. It's the balance of power and open. I think, I think you have really the bottom line really is the issue of power. Yeah. Uh, I don't know which of you was first. <laughs> well, I guess I want to bring it down to less esoteric ideas. The minute I saw these questions, all these numbers three and four kept swirling around my head, everything from Dustin Doss to my own experience in life. Uh, but number three, I'll just tell you, when I first started teaching in academy, and it wasn't because I was hiding people, but some things that I thought, movies were a big deal when I first started teaching, now they're not, but they were. I had to go clear to San Francisco from Sacramento and look around to make sure I wanted to go to the movie. Um, but two things. I thought, and I, to my mind, I was being hypocritical. And I, those of you who know me know that hypocrisy has not been my really besetting sense. Um, and I had a long discussion with myself about being a hypocrite and decided that it was important because I didn't have a teacher like me when I was in the academy. I thought I had something to give. And so I had to be hypocritical in order to A, keep my job, but also B, not be a stumbling block to the people who really thought that going to the movies was sin. That was your uh, not eating food and offered idols. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And you're on campus. And it was a hard decision. And it became increasingly harder as the years went by. And I'm just thinking of, you know, it's like the elephant in the room. Everybody who is employed by decision by this institution is thinking of numbers three and four and five. You know, and nobody's talking about that. That's what I did. Um, I think that secrecy might protect power, but it also protects safety. Yes, that's, that's the dual worlds. Yeah, I mean, speaking of professionalism, people who have met certain criteria to be licensed or registered in their profession are probably going to be safer giving advice or giving surgery or, you know, practicing something than somebody who hasn't had that. Um, you know, somebody who's gone through all the loops and passed the test and demonstrated that they know the material. So yes, maybe it's a form of power, a profession saying no one but us really knows enough to practice this. It's also a form of safety uh, for people from people who might be charlatans or just really uh, uneducated in different areas. Secrecy might um, be an act of benevolence. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard the term uh, a loving dictator. So, if the person that's carrying the power is truly on kind, and they want to hold a secret to spare someone, the only, the only story that comes to my mind that really works on that is um, the story that was in Inside Magazine many years ago when I was Inside Magazine age. Um, mm -hmm. It was a story of a woman who was in a terrible car accident, and. Um, no one told her the true state of her condition. They all held it a secret. The physician held it a secret. The husband held it a secret. They urged her to learn to walk again, and she painstakingly tried to make that journey over and over until she finally succeeded. And one day she walked without aid 
from one side of the room to the other. Her husband was waiting for her to open arms. And she saw the look on his face and realized the truth that she called him every day until then. And that was that every bone in her throat was perfect. And she was never supposed to be able to walk. So the biblical story that comes to my mind, and I have not spent a great deal of time exploring it for the past few past, but um, when God told Adam and Eve not to eat other children of good and evil, he was holding something away from them. He was withholding something. But he didn't make that withholding a secret. He was very open about that secret. Maybe a bit of a nuance on this would be the attorney-client privilege. The privilege is not an absolute privilege, and it is owned by the client, not by the attorney. So while I can go to jail, refuse to disclose attorney-client privilege information, the client can do so anytime he wants to. He can say, yeah, make my file public. I have no control over that. Whether I want to or not, it's not my privilege. It's the client's privilege. And if you look at that from the standpoint of why do we have the privilege, it's not about power and hiding things. It's about the ability of the attorney to give good advice and the ability of the client <clears throat> to share things that he didn't want anybody else to know and get appropriate advice on that. Uh, that might inform a little bit of some of the nuance of what we're looking at here. Well, the laws and verbal laws. So let's talk about number seven. Yeah. <clears throat> mm. um, I think many of us feel that, that um, Entities in Silver Spring are coming up with documents in secret and then suddenly saying, oh, and now this, right? That haven't been voted on, voted or voted on, or they just issue them and say, well, here's what, here's, this is it now. And, and re, they are not going to say, well, we're doing this because our deeds are evil, right? They, this is a judgment call in terms of why do people think, no, you're doing this because. We can interpret their motives. They interpret their own motives. I'm sure they think they have good motives, right? Um, what, what do you suppose that motive is? I just have curious what you like about this. What do you suppose they say their motive is? Or justification? Uh, I'll tell you what I've read. Think. Um, so part of this is all built on the idea that I wish Ross were here because he wrote the uh, he wrote the entrance in the SDA Encyclopedia under General Conference as the Voice of God, right? And, um, well, I was in And I think there is a sense that, okay, the GC voted this in session, so now this is God's will. And our job is to make everybody line up with God's will, because that's, what, that's, that's our job, right? Isn't that a the part of their argument? It is their argument. Their argument is false. Well, right. I mean, I mean, because, because the general conference in 2015 did not set policy. They rejected policy. And, and there's just, they don't have a leg to stand on. I think one of our problems today, and it's not just in the church, it's everywhere, is that we have all decided that we can ascribe meaning to someone else's motives. We get to decide what their motive is because if you disagree with me, your motives are obviously nefarious. And I think that's we, we have to be really careful to stop ascribing you know, our perspective to someone else's motives. I mean, you can sit there and kind of go, ah, this doesn't look good. <coughs> but we get real, I mean, that, that's the essence of judgment, isn't it? Is to say, we know what their motives are. I don't know. Um, my guess is most of these guys think they're doing what's good. But then we immediately ascribe to, but we disagree with their decision or, or, or their mindset, and thus, it must be bad. But we don't want anybody to do the exact same thing to us. Because we know that our motives are good, and thus, they should 
always accept what we say, we should never have to accept what they say because they're bad. <laughs> Why? Because they disagree with us. But what does that have to do with secrecy? Why do they have to be secret? I, I, I'm just saying, you have to be careful that you, you don't ascribe to yourself perfection. I think the, the, the issue has come down to when there's secrecy, there's lack of unifying oh, deliberation and ability to, <coughs> to engage. To engage. Right. Uh, they, have start, they have started sooner this year. If that is the document they're going to present at annual council, that's true. Um, they have come out. It's much more of an open uh, type of form, much more transparent. Um, for the question I have is whether that will actually be the document that we get in <laughs> council, but we'll have to wait and see. Okay. The reminder that we both read was looking at relationships, marriage relationships, but friend relationships and work relationships. And it's like a lot of times things, but when you have people who are in a self-protective mode, so some people are passive-aggressive, some people are aggressive, some people are, you know, there's various ways that we respond uh, when we feel like we're somehow threatened. And, um, Within Adventism, one of the big issues, I think, is self-identity. And so you have different people perceiving our identity in different ways and doing things to protect our view of what our identity might be. I think that's, that, that last point is, is very appropriate. The, the big question on the plate today is, who is really an Adventist? <laughs> And, and if we can answer that and somehow make only the people who fit the answer to that question the members of the church and get rid of all the others somehow. Um, and I did Sabbath school on this once a number of years ago on our metaphors for church. Um, and we have a whole variety of metaphors for church. One of those metaphors is a club for in which you have a membership, from which you could be excluded. Exactly. You know, another member, another metaphor is church is a fortress. You know, uh, being impinged upon by threatening. Any, anybody on the outside of that fortress is an enemy. Is yeah. right. Is an enemy, and they'll persecute you. They'll do whatever because you're going to be standing for your faith at some point. Um, people have recently suggested that maybe one of our metaphors should be church as a hospital, That's where everybody is welcome because all of us are crippled. <laughs> We hope everybody's welcome. I'm just saying, part of the reason is that people have different perceptions of our identity and how metaphors be operated. I just, on, on matters of metaphor, our, our choices of metaphors are often not entirely elective because very powerful and enduring institutions in society impose the metaphor by which you must understand yourself. In American society, church as club carries the force of law. Churches, I mean, American history invented the idea of the denomination. The denomination means American religion. And under the first disestablishment, uh, the church is no longer uh, a guarantor of public order, uh, you know, um, equal with the king. The king is the president is not a defender of the faith. What, what churches become is of necessity voluntary association, which is a fancy word for club. So that metaphor is a club. Uh, it has rules, and you can be included or excluded depending on how you keep those <coughs> rules. We, that is a constant stumbling block and something to get over if you're reaching for more inclusive metaphors like hospital or body of Christ, or that kind of stuff. Um, the force of law and the force of American institutions demand that we understand ourselves as law. And maybe are the people of Silver Spring that we are wringing our hands over uh, are very much under control of uh, that metaphor and its implications. But then we start to insert into that that if you're excluded from the club, you're excluded from God. Yeah. Okay. Oh. It, it just seems to me it becomes a very kind of 
complicated because it all comes down to their identity. I mean, if you believe that you should have a a solid identity, then threats are going to be experiences of existential crisis. Then you're going to have to put up borders and you're going to have to be inclusive and exclusive. And I think what you said was really important that the thing on the table now is what is madness. Are we going to be the kind of open forum for everybody who wants to gather to worship to be together, or are we going to be putting up walls and borders and that kind of thing? And it seems to me that's kind of thing that's happening now everywhere, right? Even in the United States. Oh, you know, we live in the generation of individuality. Years ago, it was collectivism. When Jesus prayed, Our Father, he didn't say, My Father, he said, Our Father, really signifying that we as a community are under God's standards. It's not about what you want, what I want. It's about what the standards are, and we keep the standards together. At this college, we have certain standards. We don't accept everything anybody out there does. Or do we? Because we have standards to protect. And if we allow everything anything to come in here, it's going to influence our own children or our own students. And I'm seeing that it's a major difference in our generations and how we think today. Because we're trying to make every single individual important and special. I mean, we all are, but we have to live up to certain standards. We can't just accept every single standard that comes in. And I think this is the problem, is that we're trying to please everybody. Um, Jesus, uh, when Jesus came, he tried to explain what the kingdom of God was, and it took him uh, three and a half years, and during that time, he said, well, the kingdom of God is like uh, the five foolish virgins and the five wise virgins. The kingdom of God is like a man who built his house on the rock, not on the sand. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Um, well, what is it? Um, but I think what he was saying was, the kingdom of God is bigger than the denominations, bigger than the nationality that you are in. It's bigger, it's a different, it's a different kingdom than you've known in the past. And uh, it, it might be secret, but you're welcome to look at it. And it's, it encompasses all of you in some aspect, unless you want to ignore it. And those are the five foolish virgins. Those are the people on the sand. Those are the people on the sand. Those, those are the kinds of things. And, it, and Jesus was never able to actually um, identify in dictionary terms what the kingdom of God is so that we would we could nail it down. It's still just stories which are open to interpretation. But their boundaries, see, their boundaries between the 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 Those boundaries are the ones that we create or are the ones that are national infamous for violating all those boundaries. <laughs> He violated so many boundaries, he was killed. Right, yeah. He knew who he was, he was comfortable with it. When they are, we won't need as many boundaries. Right. Let me go back to the race initial comment about power. Uh, I think power really does inform this. Uh, you couple that with the existential uh, fear of not being part of your identity, losing part of your identity. Uh, and that gives the people who are really struggling to get power tremendous leverage. I know in my own situation, I went through quite an existential crisis when I began to question uh, some of the, the church teachings and, and my under, underlying beliefs. And listening to the to the comments here, uh, 
there is a lot of angst coupled with what the organization, GC, is going to do with that power. Since I don't really identify myself with that group, it's meaningless to me. There is no power over me. So we have to have we have to have those parameters, and you have to be part of the end group. And people in power use that existential fear of being excluded from the group to maintain their power. Where our source of income comes from a different place. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we're going to have to wrap it up here because we have only just one minute left. I'm tempted to venture into the deep, but I'm going to friends. <laughs> uh, well, I'll just briefly mention that in the legacy of message, he starts by addressing the church. It's in the first, uh, no, second singular uh, pronoun that he uses in all the churches. So the church is, is you, Sue in, in Greek. Uh, he addresses them by that, and then he shifts, he says, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. If you, because uh, you say you are rich, increased with good, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are poor, miserable, blind, and wretched, and naked. So I'm about to spew you out of your mouth unless you take counsel with me and buy the gold which is dried in the fire and, and take on my raiment that you may be covered and that you take my eyes out that you may see. And then he says, I standing at the door, not inside the church, outside the church, standing at the door and knocking. If anyone, in Greek it's very specifically anyone, it's not even a pronoun really, I mean it's a demonstrative pronoun, it is. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, <coughs> with him, and he with me. There's no more church. If God has to spew the church out of his mouth, there's no more church. It's whoever wants me. And they're inside the church. Doesn't mean the church ends. It just means that God is not relying on the church to do what He wants done. He's relying on individuals who open that. So I, I just—is that secrecy, or is that just simply the way things have to work at that point? Let's close with this. Oops. Everything that Christians do should be as transparent as the sunlight. Truth is of God. Deception in every one of its myriad forms is of Satan. And whoever in any way departs from the straight line of the truth is betraying himself into the power of the living. It's a very strong statement. I'll leave it to you to think about. Let's pray. O oh God of truth, we pray that we may not only see truth, and come to truth, that, that that truth will live and move in us, and that our lives will truly be as transparent as we can make them and proclaim the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.